Hello, Annie Trenders. Welcome to the Girl Taku, hosted by the ladies of anime trending. We are back with another fun topic on the table. My name is Gracie, and I am joined by. Hello, I am Isabel, and this is Agnes. So, without further ado, the Girl Taku today will be about the depiction of non Japanese cultures in anime in both the good and the bad. So I think it comes at no surprise per se that most of anime are tend to take place in Japan and it is with Japanese characters. In fact, even more fantasy stories will still in many ways resemble Japan, the Japanese culture, and thus the Japanese people as well. However, in the same way that a lot of stories nowadays have a lot of international cross-reference, it is the same in anime. And of course, Japanese people will also be interested in other countries and cultures uh, regardless, just in the same that everyone around the world will be interested in other people's countries and cultures. So there are depictions of other countries and their settings and their cultures in anime itself. Of course, not all of them turn out to be the best, per se. So, and of course, there are also some that turn out to be really good. So with that longer introduction out of the way, I will start off the podcast today. So this isn't my topic that I chose for Girl Taku, but I was really excited that Agnes, she was the one who chose this one, picked it, because I do think it's an interesting thing to dive into. However, and I have to admit to you girls, and I hope you guys did a better job than me, when I started looking at the anime that I have watched and seen and and can talk to about, not a lot of them take place outside of Japan, and unless they're straight up fantasy with no sort of cultural ties to even like other countries per se. And then the ones that I have watched have like moments maybe that references other countries and other countries' cultures and stuff, but they don't really have an importance to it. That's that's what I was trying to aim for was that not so much if the anime as a whole has good or bad representation or stereotypical representation of certain cultures, but more of the fact that there are like minute character backstories or instances where you kind of feel like, oh, this might be like really representative of a character's background. And then at some point you're like, oh, this is kind of like a repeated gag, you know? Mm, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So so looking into it, the only sh- real show that I've seen that very heavily takes place outside of Japan is actually Banana Fish. And I actually can't say Banana Fish did a bad job with the U.S. with the time period in particular. The Iraq War, unfortunately, is still a very heavily debated and honestly probably going uh, is a blemish in U.S. history in regards to what happened there and sort of the corruption that was involved in regards to it. So in a way, Banana Fish actually did a good job with relocating its time period to be a little more modern. Just for reference in the manga, it was the Vietnam War, which is a very, very highly contentious war in U.S. history even today. So uh, so it makes sense as to what they did. So I actually thought, like, it wasn't bad where I would say that, you know, this would be the bad of anime uh, portrayal of the cultural side of things for the U.S. But, however, while I can't specifically point at an anime 
with these things, I do remember I always saw them in the back of my head and I, it would like log in my memory that I would just get annoyed that I see it, but then I would just sort of brush it aside because I've seen it so often at this point. So in my case, instead of giving an example of an anime with like specifically bad showings of how it didn't portray U.S. culture correctly. And I'm mainly speaking to U.S. and Chinese culture because those are the two cultures I can most specifically talk to about. U.S. obviously because I am a U.S. person and then Chinese being, you know, that is my ethnicity and I was very much raised in it. So I, I can't really speak to any of the other countries' culture as well as I can for Chinese in the U.S., but some of the things that I would remember constantly being annoyed with when I watch anime, when there is an instance of mentioning the U.S. or the U.S. is some part of backstory or, you know, even like a quick scene of it is the lack of color <laughs> in regards to when they show scenes of uh, taking place in the U.S. In particular, because Japan anime will often, you know, pull up New York City or Los Angeles or San Francisco or Chicago, you know, like big cities in the U.S. And it is just a sea of white people with like blonde hair. Sea <laughs> of white people? <laughs> and, oh, and, no. And oh, they, I didn't even think about that, but you're right. Yes. And that always bothered me so much because here's the thing there are definitely areas and locations in the u.s where it is just very very vast majority white people notably smaller towns that are on the fringes of big cities or even states where there's a lot of agriculture involved because of a long historical family you know down the line sort of thing when the settlers first came to the u.s you know the white european settlers first came to the u.s and such however when it comes to huge cities you cannot walk outside and not see a non-white person like you you are just going to where i'm at i live in one of the biggest cities in the u.s like Walking out on the street, I am much, I'm actually more likely to run into a person of color, whether it's Asian, Hispanic, Black, all kinds of, uh, and I, when I say Asian, I mean like the entire continent of Asian. So I'm not just talking about East Asian. I'm talking about like, um, I talk about Southeast Asians and, and I'm talking about people who are, you know, Middle Eastern as well. So it's just, there, my city is not the largest city in the U.S., but I can I walk out and I'm more likely to see a person of color than I am a white person, especially a white person with blonde hair and blue eyes, which is another thing I noticed that they always oh, depict Americans God. as blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> and so, and and the thing is, I wouldn't be complaining as much either if like those things did take place in those smaller towns or states in which you know. It would be a vast majority of white people, but they don't. They always pick New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco, or what other humongous city in the U.S. And the humongous cities in the U.S. are literally the most diverse places in the entire country. And some would even argue some of the most diverse places in the entire world. So it is quite literally impossible to take a snapshot of that city and just have a sea of white people with blonde hair. It's just not. <laughs> and so, and that was something that always bothered me whenever I see moments of that. I'm just like, there should be, like, I'm like, where, where are the black people? Like, where are the Hispanic people? Where'd they go? So, so that always bothered me. 
Another thing that bothers me about the DUR's portrayal is in a few instances where we do see cops, they're all very nice and they all are very like, I'm willing to help and stuff like that. And I'm not saying that as in cops aren't nice or anything, but I, it is a pretty well-known fact that cops are very much more gun happy in regards to the U.S. And I do say this with, uh, you know, with some genuine backing to it, because one of the first things that my parents noticed when they immigrated to the U.S. were the guns that were just hanging off the cop's side. And they uh, they got on a plane. They got to Los Angeles first, as most unless uh, Los Angeles is a big city that, you know, is a very international hubbub area. And that was to that day, like my dad and my mom remember that being the first thing they noticed that was different about the U.S. Not the fact that there were so many different colored people compared to them. Not the fact that they were speaking a different language from them or, or even their clothes. It was the fact that the, the police officers that were walking around had giant guns hanging off of their sides. And that is something that tends to get conveniently Forgot it. <laughs> Whenever an American cop shows up in um, in an anime show, and that is uh, unfortunately something that is quite distinctly American at this point. If that is the first thing an immigrant would notice when they stepped off of a plane, so that is another thing that I always think of in regards to the incorrect uh, portrayal of things. And finally, like I had mentioned earlier, you know, every U.S. Uh, character is always blonde hair and blue eyes. And I'm just like, that's not our defining thing at all in regards to U.S. people. Like, it's just, I'm sorry that this is U.S. people, like, even uh, even when I think about what is considered a U.S. person, I, at least for me growing up in a diverse area, like, I don't it's actually hard for me to assign like a skin color or a hair color because there's so many different kinds of people who are U.S. who are U.S. people. So I can't, you know, it doesn't doesn't go to blonde hair and blue eyes, but that seems to be Japan's, um, you know, default in regards to anyone from the U.S. or a transfer student from the U.S. or oh, oh, or even better, when the transfer student is half Japanese and half American, but for whatever reason, it's the blonde hair and blue eyes that genetically oh. stays. <laughs> We know, genetically speaking, blonde and blue are recessive genes, and they're very, very hard to inherit. You are much more likely to inherit darker color eyes and darker darker color hair. So so those are sort of like my overall thoughts of the bads I've seen. I'm sorry I couldn't bring a legitimate like anime to the table, but I, it's, it's like I said, I for some reason seem to just forget which anime in which these scenes occur, but it's just something that I always seem to recognize when I see it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, so that is my baz. Isabel, I heard you react to the whole like transfer student thing. Did you have, uh, did you want to add something to that? <laughs> no, not really. Although like, yeah, I, I admit it's hard though. Like if you wanted to represent that and usually the children would be, or at least the character would still have probably black hair and it's hard to distinguish that from, you know, Japanese people. So I think, I think that's one of the reasons why they wouldn't do that. So if they want to make it obvious then yeah, it's a different colored hair, um, but then there's also, if they still wanted to do that, there might be like red hair or brown hair, so they could do yeah, that Yeah, exactly. But, but yeah. There's, there's definitely that too. I know that the the only like transfer student in anime that has shown that is like half Japanese and half American that isn't blonde and blue eyes would be kids from The Slope. 
Oh, that's um, true. Because yes. mm. the the male protagonist, he was like born basically from a union between a Japanese woman and a U.S. soldier, and he has like he may look blonde in some lighting in the epi- in the episodes, but he's mostly like very brawny, brown hair. Doesn't look quite Japanese, but he is Japanese, right? So yes. I guess like that's the only antithesis I can think of. But you're right in the sense that all Japanese transfer students somehow have the blonde hair and the blue eyes, and they're like sort of like a source of fascination for the Japanese broader public that is mostly homogenous looking. Yeah, exactly. And uh, one thing I do think of is I don't understand why they don't do hazel eyes for the transfer students simply because hazel eyes is genetically speaking much, much, much more common of an eye color if it's not brown. And it is very distinct. So I'm like, you guys don't have to do blue. Do hazel. <laughs> you know, hazel makes perfect sense. I guess sense. they do blue because it's very eye-catching, you know, as a character design. So that might be another reason why a lot of the transfer students in the Japanese imagination and in anime is that they need to have the blonde hair and blue eyes so that it has a very uh, aesthetic cap. It captures a feature for the character design. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean about that. Anyway, yeah, so that is my bad segment. So for my good segment, I'm going to talk about two. Hopefully I have the time to speak about it. But on the side of anime that don't really actually have that issue with it is actually, um, it's actually a non-realistic anime, but it is Legend of the Galactic Heroes. I do want to mention that one. Uh, Legend of the Galactic Heroes, there is two sides to the war, or actually three, we've learned. But one side is called the Free Planets Alliance, and it very much resembles like NATO and the overall European Union and the alliance they have with America and and Canada. It's very heavy about how they're against the idea of regimes and, you know, royal families, and they're all about the democratically elected officials and stuff like that. And actually, Legend of the Galactic Heroes, and I'm talking about the most recent one as well, but the older one does the same. They they don't skimp out on this either. I'm just speaking to, to the one that's currently airing because I'm watching it is they have a very, very diverse group of uh, people and ethnicity from the individuals who played uh, who play a part in the Free Planets Alliance. We have actually Yang Wenli, who is genuinely a Chinese person. His you know, his name is Chinese. He looks Chinese. And then we have uh, Fazan, which is sort of, it, it's the representation of capitalism and how capitalism doesn't really choose between democracy or dictatorship. They just choose whichever makes them the most money. But Fazan, the leader, the leader there is is heavily insinuated to be Hispanic. And even in just overall, when you look at the Free Alliance people, it is just a wide range of different people with different ethnicities. There are black people, there are, you know, there are different kinds of Asian people, and they all mingle together and talk to each other. And I'm like, that is, and the Free Plants Alliance is very much meant to represent Western philosophy, including the dangers of Western philosophy as well. And I was just really, really impressed by the ability to portray that with all its diversity involved as well. And it's also kind of chilling because this novel, I believe the original story, which is a novel series, was written, I believe, over 50 years ago. Like it's it's an old, old story. And the stuff that they warned could happen with Western philosophy is actually happening now. One thing that Reinhardt, who is on the other opposing side, so he's part of an empire where there's like a ruling family. 
One thing that Reinhardt points out about the quote-unquote failings of democracy is the fact that we expect the people to know what's better and what to do. But he's like, if you get if you just get you know a bunch of self-serving assholes with you know their own personal ambitions to trick the people into thinking they care about them they will elevate these completely self-serving politicians who don't actually care about the people up into a position and potentially destroy them and you know that's hard to hear knowing that a lot of countries right now with democratically elected leaders who are struggling with that very fact as we speak and so it's I don't know. It's, there's a, an attention to detail that is just so well done, and I really adore Legend of the Galactic Heroes for its portrayal of very, very not uh, Japanese culture and done it so realistically, effectively, and with a lot of care as well. So that is uh, one of the ones I wanted to highlight. The second one is actually currently airing. I know, Agnes, you're watching it, but it's Raven of the Inner Palace. So this show takes place in Dynasty China or a magical version of Dynasty China, but I'm just absolutely blown away at the accuracy to which they portray the Dynasty period. So the first thing is I do believe this is probably rem copying the Tan Dynasty for the reason of the emblem on their foreheads that was particularly well known as a fashion design for women during the Tan Dynasty. But it's the clothes the accuracy of the clothes, the accuracy of how concubines and consorts work in regards to the uh, in regards to the relation of the emperor, like it, the the series makes it really clear that the emperor has to essentially sleep with as many women as possible out of duty for the sake of ensuring that they have as many kids as possible to continue the royalty line, which is once again a very very real thing in Chinese history. And I've talked about it before, but I highly suspect even that this is sort of the origin, original uh, point of where harm genre even comes from in the first place. And, and they portray that really well as well. Another thing they, and there's just a lot of like minute details they did that just blew me out of the water. Another thing they showed is when they do the official hand greeting for the emperor, the people of lower status would actually get down on their knees to greet the emperor versus some of the eunuchs who are higher status would instead just do a slight bow to him. Also very accurate because how you bow to the emperor is completely dependent on your status compared to him. If you're closer to him, you just have to do a polite greeting and a slight bow. If you're lower, a lot lower than him, you have to do the full on the ground, on your knees, and even like put down your head to the ground like a kowtow sort of thing. And so there is a, that is a type of very detailed look as to what it takes to greet an emperor. And the show managed to even implement that as well. So I was just endlessly surprised and uh, shocked by its uh, by its historical accuracy. The only thing that is historically inaccurate is the prince's, or sorry, the emperor. The emperor's design, his his clothes he wears is more reminiscent of a prince than it is an emperor. I suspect it is an artistic choice they did that first to show that, you know, he isn't like other emperors. Emperors usually wear very, very gaudy clothes. My second thing is I suspect as well as it's a lot harder to animate if they have to draw him in the official emperor's clothes. Because once again, it's a lot more layers, a lot shinier and a lot more, uh, a lot more accessories that they would have to draw as well. So 
that is my second one that I wanted to point out in regards to a pro of a depiction of another culture that was just done extremely, extremely well in a way that really touched me. So yeah. I mean, did you have anything you would want to add, Agnes, about Raven? Because I know you are watching that one. <laughs> no, every I, I mean, everything that you talked about here is everything we talked about in DMs about Raven anyway. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> you, I have nothing to add. Are you still enjoying the <laughs> I agree show? With everything. Just out of curiosity. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I do enjoy the show quite a bit. Uh, the latest episode this weekend that just aired was really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Alrighty then. So that is my uh, section. I will pass the baton to you now, Isabel. I hope that you have an actual anime mission on the cons in regards to the depiction of other cultures, simply because I feel bad that I wasn't able to legitimately bring one. So I hand the baton to you now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I can think of examples, but there, there are some examples that I feel like I don't feel comfortable representing just because I, you know, I'm may not be familiar with that culture altogether. So it would be me kind of like saying things or reading things that I've seen online from other people's experiences. So that's what I can't speak on. But I'm gonna go with my hero because that's the one that I, I don't, I, I always pick bones with, and then also I find hilarious at times when it especially when I'm watching the show and I think it's supposed to be serious, but instead I'm just laughing because of its re representation of America mm. and the, just the States in general. Um, yeah. The, the scene I was specifically talking about are just basically the, the moves that they have. So every time All Might or Deku has a really awesome move to, you know, defeat enemies, it's always like a state and then smash or something like there's the california smash or the detroit oh. smash and i'm like why are we naming like cool <laughs> punching moves just after states in america or not even states because i was like okay if it's states then great right like we can have nebraska smash and that's totally fine but then we decided to do like detroit and i'm like but that's like a city it doesn't <laughs> there's no consistency i know yeah. when you first said like you know california smash i was like yeah that is kind of cringy you're like detroit smash and i was like that's not a state though <laughs> so yeah right so those are my thoughts too i think there's this one scene where all might is um fighting against all for one and he just i think he just says something like united states of smash and it was like a really <laughs> epic moment and i wow. i was actually just laughing my ass off at that point <laughs> And I was like, I can't, like, I, I was like, this is cool, but it's really, really funny to me. And I think it's different from what other people might be experiencing as well. Like, I feel that maybe if you were, if a Japanese person were watching it, they would just be like, oh, that's so cool, right? Like, they don't, they don't really know the context behind it, or mm. it just sounds cool to them, in a sense. Um, so that's what I get behind it. But like, if you really think about it from an American perspective, and because my hero is marketed towards not only just Japanese people, but, you know, globally, like, this doesn't make sense, especially, so. Yeah, I think it's also because, you know how there's, like, that misinterpretation of if you're living outside of America, you think, like, America's made out of, like, four parts, where it's, like, the West Coast is, like, California only, the South is just mm -hmm. oil nation Texas, and then the East is, like, New York, and then everything in the middle is, like, but 
kind of nowhere. You have no idea what that is. I think that's what makes it even funnier is that they're naming all these like very specific places in the U.S. and people have, people in Japan probably have like no idea because they don't even know how to name any of the states or cities in the U.S. I, it actually reminds me of one of those meme maps where it's like California completely on the um, yes, that's it's, it, New it's York exactly on that. the it's top, that meme map on the top yeah. east, and then it's like Texas, and then there's like one section that's Disney. It's not even Florida; it's just Disney because it's <laughs> Disney. <laughs> that's even worse. Oh my god! You know what's ironic is like people think like you know the heart of or at least like outside right because everyone has a a fragment of Disney World that exists in their country. Like, Japan has Disney World in Tokyo. And then, you know, like, in Europe, there's a Disney World. I think the Disney World's in Paris. Are Disney World's in Florida, out of all places, but the real hub for Disney's in California. You know, that's, like, the weird, like, photo pod that people think that the, the true world for Disney is in Florida, but it's actually in California. Yeah, 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 exactly. Also, I have a quick question, Isabel. Are they American? Is that why they're named with, like, their punches like that or no yeah that's the second thing so all might looks very american kind of blonde hair blue eyes like you said and then he's also you know very strongly built he's also very loud especially when he's in his uh you know um superhero form i would say Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i mean he's supposed to be a parody of or either a parody or just kind of a representation of american comics which i can see and it's totally fine but the thing is, he's he's not American. He's Japanese-born. So, or I don't know if they go past it, but to my knowledge, he is he's from Japan. He is Japanese, yeah. Um, I think all the inheritors of the 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 elf the one was it elf for one or one for all power that they have. One for all. Mm-hmm. One for all, right? I think all the inheritors of the one for all power they're all Japanese, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, the previous owner before All Might was Japanese, obviously, his teacher. And so, you know, they pass it down, which is fine. And then, like, it just seems that All Might had, he went to America, he stayed in California for a bit. They go over this in one of the movies or something. And even that was funny, because I think at one point or one of the scenes, um, it was clearly depicting Las Vegas, because they had all these casinos and things Mm. like that. Oh, no. But they're like, no, that was in California. No! Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, okay. I think I saw that in the movie. I was like, I'm like questioning things. Like, that's not really California. I mean, sure, we have casinos, but we all know that's like the strip in yeah. Las Vegas. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was funny to me. And then, so yeah, it seems like All Might, because he went to California and stayed there for a bit and, you know, did his, you know, some of his internship there and became superhero. He was so influenced by that. He brought it back to Japan and then that's how he is um and then yeah i never see a mention of like you know i grew up with black hair or something like that like my hair became naturally yellow because i stayed in california what i don't know (laughs) how i understand getting maybe like sun bleached hair because like you know uh, walking around in the sunlight for a long time the tips of your hair do do grow a little bit more brown or lighter but not to the point where it's completely blonde (laughs) that's a bit of a stretch yeah so i don't know how it happened i it just i that's my theory that he came to the U.S. and therefore he became blonde or he loves dyeing his hair blonde and we never really know. But yeah, those are my thoughts on All Might and I feel like, yeah, it, My Hero just has some funny representations of America in general. Is that the only one with the punches or are there like other moments? Like you mentioned the movie with the Las Vegas but it's apparently in California sort of thing. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there are. I just, yeah, um... I guess there. I can't think of other moments that stand out because most of my hero is based in Japan, so they do have a lot of 
things that happen in Japan. A lot of other characters that seem like they could be American or different, but I haven't really seen the backstories behind those characters, so I'm not too sure. Oh, this does remind me though. Do do the two of you guys like cringe or laugh when one of the supposed attractive characters start talking in English, but it's just totally not fluent, and apparently it's supposed to be like really good and attractive, but it sounds terrible. <laughs> that's because that's something that I still cannot handle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that 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 is definitely uh, a language barrier that the Japanese voice actors cannot. Pass over for some reason as a hurdle and still continue to voice like Western people. I just, I just wish they could like just breed someone, anyone to say the English line really, really quickly. Like a great pretender actually got genuine voice actors to voice the Chinese lines or any of the other lines. Uh, oh, and recently in Akiba, uh, Akiba Made War, like they actually got a Japanese voice actress who speaks fluent Russian and. Oh my god, you could tell. Like when they start speaking the other language, it just sounds more natural. And so I just Oh absolutely. It probably sounds more natural than the Golden Kamui version of the Russian language. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. That's why that's why when I heard her, I was like, wait, I think this is actual Russian. Like I don't think this is like a Japanese person trying to say Russian, so and I think, uh, and I and I believe Alexis gave his uh, approval for French, actually, in Licorice Recoil. Apparently, uh, ch- at least the actual voice actress for Chihuahua apparently just really pulled off French. So that was also very impressive as well. But that was another thing I thought of is when they speak in the other language, but it very obviously sounds terrible and you're supposed to take it as them being cool. But you're like, eh, it doesn't sound very cool. <laughs> so... <laughs> the English part is like especially cringy when when they're supposed to say like hello like how may I help you they're like hello how may I help you and you're just like no please <laughs> it just doesn't you stop, don't right? roll the R's for the L's yeah. please <laughs> uh, all right so if that was the one you wanted to highlight for you know not a great depiction in regards to other cultures uh, what is one that you would like to show off for it's a good depiction of other cultures that it's impressed you on. Yeah, you actually mentioned it. So I really like Great Pretender and its representation of <laughs> basically all the locations that they go through. And yeah, I especially like the Singapore one uh, just because I've only visited Singapore once, but I thought all the landscapes that they um, you know, looked into and then actually put into the story, especially for an original anime like that, I thought that was great that they did a lot of research into that and was able to depict it also like the little like bubble tea references um obviously when i went to singapore i don't think i don't know if bubble tea was a thing because i was much younger then and i think that's when bubble tea just started but unless it was already there um but yeah i thought that was kind of cute and then um and also just like there's so many characters in great pretender uh you know people of color i one of the stories i like was uh with one of those big boss guys, I think his name was Eddie, and then he had someone working under him called Salazar, who he had joined the mafia because he wanted a better life for his son. Oh, that was the first arc, and that took place in LA, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay, that one. Yeah, I like that one a lot just because it was a lot, it was pretty relatable. Like a lot of families, uh, kind of, you know, a lot of families come here to make better living for their children and i felt like that was like salazar's story and with his son was kind of a representation of that you know he's he's doing a job that's not so great being the mafia and 
having to listen to Eddie all the time, right? And taking taking all the crap for what he does. But then in the end, you know, it's for his son and he wants to spend more time with him and things like that. Um, and then, of course, our characters, you know, try to show him on the right path. You know, you shouldn't be with the mafia and things like that. But, you know, he had no other choice. So I kind of like those little stories, like even with the supporting characters, um, as well as kind of um, Abigail's story as well with the Middle East. Like, I didn't know about that. You know, I was wondering about her character as well. So I'm glad that Great Pretender took the time to dive deep into everyone's stories um, and then show representation based off of that. I know you both seen that. Like, what did you guys think about that? Did you also like the representation in Great Pretender? The definitely the representation in the first arc, so in the LA arc, was really good. Like, I thought it was like pretty spot on of LA representation. They did the staff that came to Anime Expo to talk about Great Pretender did say that they did a lot of research coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going around LA, so you see stuff like the In and Out symbol, right? Oh, that is yeah. that is pinnacle California. If you're not gonna do the California smash, at least do an In and Out smash, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. There's that, and then they have, like, the whole, you know, like, Gracie talks about how when Japan depicts a big American city, you just see a lot of white people. But in Great Pretender in LA, you see, like, there's a smattering of, like, different ethnicities. Like, Salazar and his son are clearly Latin American, or maybe Mexican for the for the closeness of California and Mexico. And then a lot, and then you have a lot of the other characters are also different ethnicities. Like, Abigail is from the Middle East. Uh, Laurent is presumingly french and then um yeah their names the, the, actually match their ethnicities too that was another right thing. exactly yeah. and they're not stereotypical names too you know mm. um abigail i think she goes by the name abigail just because it's a pseudo name it's not like an actual it's yeah not i don't actual, think we no learned her name. actual name honestly no we don't actually learn her her real name we only know like figments of her past but laurent is definitely a french name and i'm glad they didn't choose something like Jacques Pierre or something like that. They're just like super duper common. You're just like, okay, dude. Or like Francois or something, right? Um, and then like uh, Edomura as well. Like he has also like a very unique Japanese name, but it's not something basic, you know? So I thought that was a, a really cool touch that they did in Great Pretender was give these characters a little bit more backstory, give them a bit more personality and give them like more unique names that you would typically see in that country instead of like James or like Richard or something. Mm. Also, were you the one who mentioned before that you were surprised about how they portrayed the bombing of Baghdad, I believe? Yes, I think I might have been the person who mentioned it on an offhand comment because the bombing of Baghdad is very, very controversial in the U.S. Um, And for Abigail to be extraordinarily angry still at westerners and specifically americans who were in charge of the who basically executed the whole like bombing of baghdad or at least instigated it is i think very understandable from her point of view rather than just kind of like it being glossed over because i can definitely imagine and seen so much from consuming more middle eastern news or more middle eastern like information and readings is that there are people who are genuinely very angry at the intervention of the west in a lot of these political um, drawing of country borders and things like that. And then there are people who are more sympathetic or more reliant on these Western countries. So it paints a more morally gray type of situation with a lot of these characters because there's no right, there's no good or bad guy in that sense. So I was really glad that they had like that scene of Abigail just going absolutely nuts and psycho and blaming the American for the things that he did in Baghdad when the reality is that they could no, no everyone had to choose a side 
Yeah, I think we have to remember the humanity in war, which is very difficult because when war comes in, it's a very man versus man situation. There is a good and there is a bad depending on and depending on where you're at, you get to decide on who the good and the bad is. So but there's there's stuff underneath it of people who don't really get a say on who's the good and the bad who gets swept into the whole situation as well. And that's what makes it really hard and makes it really sad. Absolutely. Yeah. So I really like Great Pretender. I One thing that I keep thinking about is how they actually got Chinese voice actors to voice the Chinese, and that always gets me because I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't understand what they're saying without the subs. <laughs> I don't need subtitles in regards to it. The uh, And I think they also did put a lot of effort into showing how beautiful the different locations are like and I and I know that was their point they wanted to show sort of the grandiose of like different countries and how all different countries have beautiful sites and beautiful things to them no matter where you go whether it is the infamous LA traffic that they were actually apparently really excited to show <laughs> um <laughs> But the L.A. traffic or the Singapore buildings or uh, there was one of one of my favorite shots is actually when Abby like decided to climb the Grand Canyon once like all the missions were over and stuff like that. And it was just, oh, oh that was scenic. Oh, it was so breathtaking. I loved it so much. So you can really feel like the passion they put into it in regards to showing these international locations and showing how beautiful the world is, per se, in regards to the series itself. I do want to, like, bring up one funny little thing is there's a very popular video of Grand, uh, Great Pretender on YouTube, and it's specifically a scene in the last arc where everyone was, like, shooting guns crazily. <laughs> I know this video. <laughs> yeah, and so the title of the video is, uh, the title of the video is Meanwhile in the U.S., <laughs> And it shows, and on the background, they replace the they replace the sound with the music party in the USA, while all the characters are like shooting guns and going crazy. And my favorite part of that video is just the string of comments from US people who are like, "As an American, I just want to say there's not enough guns." <laughs> so, and I just thought that was so funny. <laughs> it's so the the me that meme video is just so scarily accurate to the fact that there are so many homicide, manslaughter, and, like, gun violence in the U.S. And that image alone, I know it's supposed to be, like, a parody, but, like, it it hits so close to home. Like, that is so true. Whoever edited that is, like, a mean guy. I know. It great. was so funny. And I, I also appreciated one comment that was, like, I was going to remark and ask if this is accidentally, uh, if this is accidentally insulting to uh, Americans, but now that I see all the other Americans commenting, going, yeah, there's not enough guns, I see that it is not insulting at all. <laughs> <laughs> If anything, it's downplaying the experience living <laughs> in America. Oh, and then uh, one of my other favorite comments was, the door closing is the border between Canada and the U.S. Stop! Oh. Stop! <laughs> oh, gosh, I love that. Yeah, video. Canada does not want to do anything with America. They're just like, nah. Bro, well, not nah, the no gun part. Nah. That much is certain. So, I, you know what? I might rewatch this video after our podcast episode because now that it's making me remin like reminiscing it again. But yeah. Please, please. Please repost that uh, that clip when you when this episode goes Ooh, live. Oh, I Gracie, could. I need yeah. people to see it. Yeah, yeah, I should. Okay, I'll do that. 
Uh, yeah. Alrighty. So, was that all you wanted to talk about in regards to Great Pretender? Yep, that was all I wanted to talk about. So, I believe it's Agnes's turn. What do you have for us? Hello, hello. Yes, yes. So, I sat there. I was trying to think for it for a long time. I'm like, what is the good and the bad? And the good turns out to be mostly historical fiction anime that I'm like, okay, okay, I can't I can't actually pick historical fiction anime because these people clearly did their research. I have to choose something that goes beyond that, something more fiction or more fantasy or more whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Because the reality is, is that when you, when you enter an anime that is historical fiction, most likely it's going to be very historically accurate. So like, Golden Kamui and like uh, Emma, for instance, are two fantastic animes that are very rooted in historical research. So I decided to go a little bit outwards. Um, let's start with the bad. <laughs> so one of my biggest gripes, I think, with uh, with anime portraying Western people in particular, is when the Western a foreigner, I guess, the love interest of the shoujo main character turns out to be somehow a part British or part French, and their family owns a large estate somewhere oh, in Europe, oh, and they're very, very rich. Oh, I know what you're referring to. And the two, and the two examples that I'm going to reference for this, because the, both of them are exactly the same thing, is Kaito Wamitsuma with I Usui. It. I knew it. And also Richard from Case Files of Jeweler Richard. They have the exact same backstory, and I'm like, oh my god. Oh, hey, look, both again? of them have blonde hair and blue eyes again. So. Well, Usui has green eyes. Oh, so right, I think like right. people can argue with that, but at the same time, they they do fall into that stereotype of they're blonde, they're part English somewhere in their bloodline, and their family owns a big fat estate in Europe. You know, they're all <laughs> conveniently nobility. <laughs> they're all conveniently nobility. Either they're knighted or whatever. They have like a a land title somewhere, and I'm just sitting here and I'm like, the average British person and the average Western person does not have a land title. I will. 200% say that for certain. <laughs> like, any American schmuck living in Japan probably owns the, as much as their house. They don't have an estate somewhere in Europe. They don't have some grand land title somewhere. <laughs> so that was one of the stereotypes that I wanted to point out in regards to anime, especially for shoujo, is the love interest is typically some rich, noble person. And I think it stems from a a, a big fantasy of, you know, the the downtrodden girl, the, the pauper and the princess, sort of. Oh, uh, I see. I didn't somehow think about that. like mm-hmm. yeah, like the the so for instance, like in Kaichu Wa Made Sama, the um uh, what's her name again? My God, my, my brain is so tired. Masaki. Masaki is poor. She is an impoverished Japanese high schooler living in Japan. Her father is like a runaway drunk. Um, and her mom and and her sister are trying to get by, and then she meets Usui in this really nice, prestigious high school that she goes to, and it turns out he's the son of a very affluent doctor in Europe, and he's half he's part British, he's a quarter British or something like that, right? Uh, Case Files of R- Jeweler Richard is similar to that in which uh, the main protagonist in Jeweler Richard, so the Japanese college student who works under Richard, he's not exactly impoverished, but He's like an average schmuck high uh, college student. Probably doesn't make a lot of money on the side, but he's trying to, you know, make ends meet. And he ends up working with Jeweler Richard. He, after, he also works um, because, just a quick background, he also works because his mom remarried to a stepfather when he was a teenager and he didn't want to rely on them. Not because the stepfather was actually a bad stepfather. In fact, we find out he's a very good stepfather. It's more that 
when you're a teenager and you get a step parent in your life, things are not as easy to accept as when you are a child. So that's also why he's working. Yeah. Right. So then it becomes more of like a streak of independence that he has to rely on himself. Yes. And therefore, he doesn't have a lot of money, especially when you're a high school, when you're a college student and a high school student. Right. And then conveniently, you know, Richard gives him a nice cushy job working as a jewel jeweler appraisal, which is not an easy job. And they're attracting people who are like very, very wealthy, very rich. They're not like normal run of the mill uh, jewelers working at like a like a Ross or like a, a TJ Maxx, right? They're they're like high end boutique stuff that are accepting all these precious stones and gems from like eons back so i thought that was like a really funny twist of the the shoujo trope that the these uh westerners are typically very wealthy in the background but they kind of don't want to do anything with their wealth but instead fall in love with the uh the poor person (laughs) yeah so why so you kind of explained why they did that and what part of it in particular annoys you the most about is it just the fact that they keep pulling it out or is it they keep pulling it out yeah they keep pulling that same trope out Uh, i mentioned a bit earlier that it's first the fact that they're always rich these foreigners are always rich people and i'm like foreigners are not rich people when they move (laughs) to another country let me put it that way um I mean, you you probably see it all over, like, the news about, like, Japan, uh, foreigners, like, from America or from other countries moving to, like, Japan or Korea. They're not wealthy. They're moving there. Uh, a lot of the reasons to be part of, like, entertainment or they're moving because they were doing, like, uh, English uh, classes as teaching. So they're not wealthy in comparison to, like, businessmen or um, people with, like, land titles and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the second part is that it's always in the shoujo trope of the Westerner falling in love with the poor person and they happen to be rich. <laughs> it's a very convenient setup, I guess. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I, I I guess because they are very... Because knights is a very Western concept. So I guess the whole knighthood and thus nobility from knighthood is something that fascinates Japan. But it's not... Yeah, it's not really a thing nowadays. And they always take place in modern like t- stories too where it's like, yeah, that's not a thing anymore. So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Do you remember the, that trope, Isabel? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I feel like it was so prominent that, especially for me as a younger child, I just thought they were like princely characters. This is normal. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's that too. That's the goal, uh, to meet someone like this as a boyfriend or something, when in reality it's very, very, yeah, not very, very real- realistic at all. It sounds like for a moment Isabel wished it was realistic, though. <laughs> I did wish it was realistic. A lot of a lot of K dramas are like that too, you know, where you're meeting someone that's super rich or like oh yeah, has true. such a big yeah. title, and I'm like, yeah, this is this is not real, guys. But you know, people can dream. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just the final note that I think is funny. So uh, I think it's like a unanimous agreement that the first part of Kaito Amitsama is really good and things start to get a little weird once it got revealed that Usui comes from like is a secret love child of like the super high like nobility family etc etc and so my roommate was always like what ending we don't talk about the second half and so Alrighty then, so if that is what you didn't like, then what is an anime that you did like in regards to its portrayal outside of Japanese culture? For sure, yeah. So the first one I want to mention is Black Lagoon. 
Mm. And I think the reason why I mentioned Black Lagoon, and there are probably a lot of other animes that follow that similar trend with Black Lagoon, is that when the anime is like more military focused but international, you tend to end up creating a lot of characters and storylines that are more unique as compared to, you know, a military organization or some standalone Japanese anime that takes place in Japan. You know, it, it these types of international shows have to take place outside and you have to encounter people who are different from you. In Black Lagoon, it's very interesting because the setting of Black Lagoon is about a mercenary company that operates in southeastern Asia. And so there's a smattering of different characters of various ethnicities. You have Revi, who is American Chinese. She ended up being part of this mercenary company after she came to, she was contracted in Roranapur, which is the name of the island. And in the same mercenary company, she, her other, I guess, comrades or other co-workers, question mark, would be Dutch, which is actually a, a pseudo name for this big black guy who is apparently a former veteran of the Vietnam War because, um, the the uh the series of Black Lagoon kind of takes place like in the the eighties and nineties, um. So with Dutch being black and also having served in probably served in the Vietnam War for several years, kind of makes sense within that background. You have Benny, who is the sort of hacker of the group. He's apparently Jewish. He's blonde, but he's Jewish, which is very unique because you never hear anything about Jewish in, Jap- uh, in Japanese right. mainstream anime. You really anime. don't, yeah. <laughs> right? You hear more Jewish when you land in the U.S., but anywhere else in the world, if you're not like going to Israel, you're not in Europe, Jew- Judaism and Jewish people don't really exist, which is unfortunate because they do. Uh, and then, of course, you have Rock, who is the resident Japanese a spokesman or statesperson within that mercenary group. And then all their other allies slash friends slash frenemies, question mark, would be, for instance, like uh, Balalaika, who is Russian. She's a hardcore Russian lady. Um, her whole story with her troop is very devastating because she and her troops used to serve for the Soviet Union. But after the Soviet Union dissolved, she and her companions and her comrades had no place to call home anymore. They had nowhere to give service. So they ended up being their own mercenary company within Moranapur. You also have a very stereotypically named Mr. Chang. But Mr. Chang is actually part of a Chinese triad group operating a Moranapur. And then you have a smattering of other characters that are different ethnicities. You have someone, you have like a couple maids who are like, uh, killer maids sort of with like a lot of machine guns and stuff and they're like latin american um and then you also have like a couple other white people in there too so it's really interesting to watch black lagoon and really be immersed in this tiny little southeastern asian island of a lot of mercenary companies with so many different people that you wouldn't see in a typical japanese anime yeah i remember so you mentioning black lagoon before in regards to uh i forgot what we it was it was a woman that who would like to yes, step on me. Yes, that was. Right? It, it was Bila Laika. Bila Laika can always step on me anytime. She's great. <laughs> yeah. But that's my, yeah. Uh, well, I wish I could say anything about it, but unfortunately, I didn't watch Black Lagoon, so I can't really say anything about it. Have you watched it, Isabel? I feel like I've asked this before, but I've forgotten. Sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, I actually haven't seen it either. 
All right. I definitely know about the praises for Black Lagoon, and I think I remember that you also mentioned it for English dubs, if I'm correct. Yes. It has a very good and very convincing English dub. I think it's because it was during the time where it was during that peak phase of Funimation, like 2008 and 2009, where they're dubbing, the dubbing actors' careers like really shot off, and they were doing really good impressions of the Japanese uh, original dub as well. Yes. So that's why it was very convincing. And also the fact that because... Black Lagoon actually is international and takes place in a Southeastern Asian country where probably a lot of the constituents understand both like the common language in that area and also some English. It makes more sense that most of the characters are speaking English rather than just like a standard Japanese. Although I will say that both the Japanese dub and the English dub of Black Lagoon kind of fudged up the Japanese-English interaction that happens in the later half of Black Lagoon. But that's another story to uncover. Okay. <laughs> uh, so my second pick is actually a parody show because we talked about how the characters who are Western tend to be people who are supposed to be speaking like perfect English and apparently like are super fluent and stuff like that. And the one show that is a complete parody of that trope is Asobi Asobase, where oh. the one of the the trio girls is actually Western. She is blonde, bl- uh, blonde, blue eyes. <laughs> she looks like a perfect English doll. And every single time somebody goes up to her and asks her, "Can't you speak English?" She's immediately fretting inside her mind because she's like, "I don't understand or speak English. I only understand reading, writing, and Japanese. And my best subject is actually Japanese. I actually cannot. My worst subject <laughs> is actually English." And it's the most fun, it's the funniest gag in the entire series because there are so many people keep asking her to speak English for her, but her English is very, like, um, very stilted. She's like, hello, and like, it's not fluent English. And then on the flip side, there is the most stereotypically Japanese looking girl, like totally Nadeshko, completely like looking like she came out of the Edo period. Mm-hmm. And she speaks perfect English. She is the character that competes in English-speaking competitions <laughs> at their school. And it's the funniest reversal that I've ever seen of that trope of the Western person knows perfect English and the Japanese person doesn't know perfect English. Which I think is very funny in its own regard because, you know, you have Western people who grew up in Japan who look Western but clearly, you know, they grew up all their lives in Japan and they don't speak English or they speak very little English mm-hmm. at home, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So there's always stuff like that that exists. But the Japanese people just seem to have a super big hyperfixation on Western people always speak perfect English. You saying that actually reminds me. So I've mentioned this channel before, but Unseen Japan is a website and uh, a Twitter that talks a lot about the deeper stuff of Japan, Japanese culture that'll either people don't know or willfully ignore because it doesn't fit into their idealized vision of what Japan looks like. But one thing that they have mentioned a lot is that there are quite a bit of number of foreign looking people in Japan who just grew up there either because their parents, you know, came here because of a job and then they had kids when they were there or some other reason. And they immediately get treated as a foreigner instead and get like talking down to like a child because they just think that they don't understand Japanese and it can be really frustrating for them because they're like, oh, yeah, that's that flip side too. Yeah, 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 exactly. And they're just like, "Uh, no, if anything, it's English. I'm not great. at. It's the Japanese that I'm good at. So that also kind of reminds me of it was the so 
Was it ever explained or was it ever revealed, I guess, that, you know, uh, to the general public, since the girls know that the Nadashiko-looking girl is the one who's good at English? <laughs> no, it was just the whole parody bit, that's it. It wasn't because, uh, I think the only bit that was revealed was because the Japanese Nadashiko girl really loved English, mm. and so that's why she tried to pursue it. But otherwise, like, her worst subject is Japanese. <laughs> and that is why so, they're friends. But, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, they're not exactly friends, but they're just like classmates. They're the 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 Japanese Nadeshko looking girl isn't actually part of the main group. Oh, she's not. I thought that, she was. Okay. She's not. She's part of the episode gag that's trying to uh, undermine the fact that the blonde girl, who is part of the main group of Asobi Asobase, is Western and doesn't speak a lick of English. So she's supposed to be like that that foil to that blonde, that blonde girl in that very particular episode. Got it. Got it. Okay. Alrighty then. Well, I think that wraps up our episode in regards to the pros and cons of, you know, anime's depiction of cultures outside of just the Japan itself. So, I mean, it was a fun topic and, you know, I hope you guys enjoyed listening to us discuss about this. Let us know if there are any particular tropes or, you know, things you've seen in anime or even if it's an entire anime whose depiction of a particular culture that isn't Japanese has really insulted you guys or, you know, made you laugh or think it was uh, un- uh, not great or one that really, really impressed you. You know, we always like to see other people's opinions on that matter. Oh, and a quick note, I do think because I'm just like saying it off the top of my head right now is I'm sure people are going to mention about the overall depiction of darker skinned characters in anime. We have an episode specifically about that. So um, we are saving it for that particular thing. But do not worry, we have not forgotten about that topic as a whole of animes, sometimes very unfortunately depiction of people with darker skin. So with that being said, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode and I hope you guys will be here next time. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.